Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to Seriously, the New Statesman podcast that takes pop culture seriously. I'm Caroline Crampton. And I'm Anna Leskovich. This week we're talking about the film A Quiet Place and the second series of A Series of Unfortunate Events. We've also watched the ITV reality show Bromans for the first time, so we'll be talking about how that went later in the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Seriously. Caroline, I've just done two Harry Styles shows in a row. I'm really tired. (laughs) (laughs) How many more have you got? Is this it? That's it. That's That's me done for the year now. I've seen him six times this year, so I can't really do any (laughs) more. I think I'd die. It's only April. (laughs) I know. He's still going till July, I think. But when I say the year, I mean last May, I went to his tiny gig in the garage. Mm. And then in October, I went to three in in two in London, one in Paris and that now I've just done two in London and it was great fun is this still the sign of the times tour then yeah basically yeah it's the the Harry Styles debut album tour he's added Mm. a couple of new songs since the last time I saw him one called medicine which is this great sort of bisexual anthem where he sings about liking both boys and girls yes Mm. and then there's the other song which is called Anna (laughs) oh debuted it 169 days after we met not to i'm just <laughs> joining the dots here you know <laughs> yeah which is all about you know how he's just driven wild by this girl called anna and how she'll never know to what extent she drives him wild and i just want to say that i know and it's fine and harry styles <laughs> shouldn't be embarrassed um yeah so that was great the last two shows me and my sister went to see him on the first night and we had these kind of crap seats in the O2 you know the O2 is like mm. absolutely insane and cavernous and, and we enormous, were yeah yeah and we were on the floor but like right at the back on the floor next to this sort of like like a bunch of equipment and cameras and stuff and we were like oh this is lame and then we realized the bunch of equipment and stuff was actually a second stage and we were oh. right next to the second stage so he came and did two songs literally arm's length away from us oh, how which lovely. in the O2 is like a crazy experience because you can just see people for like miles around and then you're Mm. like oh that's Harry Styles's face in front of my face (laughs) this is horrific but yeah that was really good fun and now I'm really hungover and tired so sorry listeners (laughs) if I sound 
a little bit raspy and a little bit slow on the uptake today, but it was worth it. So did he give any hint that, so he's added two new songs. Does this Mm. mean that there might be like a new EP soon or something? I got the feeling they were rejects from the last album, which is sad because I think they're significantly better than some of the songs on that that album. So I would have much preferred them to have made the cut than a couple of others, but yeah. I got recently back into listening to it in the last few weeks, actually, and I do still really like it, but I agree it is a bit uneven. Like there Mm. were a few that I now habitually skip. Definitely. But there are also some really strong ones on there, which is why I'm keen for new stuff, I suppose. Yeah. And he does a great Fleetwood Mac cover and he does three One Direction covers and those Mm. are great. And yeah, I just love Kiwi. Kiwi is the end song of his current. I mean, it's always been his final closing track, I think, since he's been performing and people just go absolutely wild for it, including me. Like when it's (laughs) happening, I'm like, oh shit, this is like the happiest I've ever been. I love this stupid song. It's so stupid and I love it so much. (laughs) (laughs) You didn't meet any seriously listeners at these gigs. I didn't, but I always feel like I have lots of friends around me at those gigs, both literally and metaphorically, because I do often have like three or four friends in the building somewhere. Mm. And then also just, you know, people that I'm on a spiritual plane with. (laughs) (laughs) Even in the O2, the worst venue. Yeah, it Um, is the worst. But actually, one thing I will say for the O2, good toilets, good exiting system, like mm. It functions very, very well. You can get on the tube without being like queuing for it. Like leaving Wembley and going to the toilet in Wembley is just like an absolute headache. But in the O2, everything runs extremely smoothly. So shout out to the O2 crew. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Sorting that all out. But it's just so big. And that does, you know, always you lose some intimacy, don't you, in those huge venues. But when you're a guy like Harry, your charisma can fill it amazingly. <laughs> the mo- the bit that people loved the most by far was this bit where he went turned into like a weird 70s radio DJ slash bingo caller. Uh, and he kind of like chats with the crowd a bit and someone threw a Harry bow and he caught it in his mouth. Wow. And the screams were like the biggest screams of the night. It went on for so long, <laughs> just cheering at this event. So uh, <laughs> maybe we don't even need the songs. He can just do his weird sort of bingo caller routine (laughs) weird patter yeah yeah maybe he is the bruce forsyth of our generation he is a sort of 1970s light entertainment joker (laughs) he's Mm. definitely got that vibe oh right so the other thing we need to tell you listeners aside from harry styles anecdotes is that we have our next book club episode next week and the book we're doing is the cost of living by deborah levy (laughs) Uh, yes so this is so exciting because I think we've both been big fans of hers for a really long time Mm. and yeah so we're going to be talking to her we're going to be talking about the book which is this beautiful sort of later in life memoir and yeah can't wait to hear your thoughts as well so let us know uh twitter facebook all the usual ways we'd love to hear your thoughts and the book is out isn't it caroline it is yeah it came out the beginning of this month i think so you can find yourself a copy and it's really short so it's a got a beautiful yellow cover it's not hard to find in the bookshop yeah so it's an easy read i know we've we've not given you loads of notice because we kind of had to sort it out um, and make sure that we could speak to deborah levy but you should be able to read it by next week guys yeah. it's it's really slim so <laughs> enjoy okay so the first thing we're going to talk about this week is a quiet place which is a horror film that's written and directed by John Krasinski, who also stars as the father of a family trying to survive after a race of sightless superhearing creatures has killed most of the Earth's population. 
His actual wife, Emily Blunt, plays his wife in the film, and together they try to protect their three children while living in silence. Their elder daughter, who's played by Millicent Simmons, is deaf, and the family principally communicate by sign language. Yeah, so John Krasinski, most people will know from The Office, and I and many other commenters have sort of made the joke that he really perfected communicating wordlessly (laughs) with wide eyes to camera in the office US as Jim, who was always kind of giving these looks of panic to the camera when Michael was doing something terrible. So he's both directed and is the lead in this horror film, which I think is maybe a direction people weren't fully expecting from John Krasinski because we do kind of have him down as this kind of comedy actor and he's I feel like he's always in like a Nancy Myers style movie since the office he's always like the son of the in like it's complicated or whatever yeah he was in it's complicated that's the one that um, most sticks in my mind where he did exactly play the Jim role because in that doesn't he find out about the affair between Meryl Streep and Alec Baldwin before anyone else he does a lot of like wide-eyed communicating behind (laughs) their backs or something yeah he's also in um the holiday oh yes of course yeah he's in all those kinds of it's really weird that he's in um these kind of like middle-aged woman rom-coms and now he's done this quite visceral quite grim film that is a horror film and with his off-screen wife as well and i read an interview where he was like oh yeah emily and i wanted to do something where the main narrative wouldn't be husband and wife work together Mm. and i think they've kind of pulled that off with this because the film has created so many talking points that they've managed to escape it just being about the fact that they're really together and they're together on screen. So that's great. Yeah, and I think what's helped with that is the fact that there's, as you would expect, almost no dialogue in this film. So while obviously they do act together quite a lot, there aren't like clips you can play of them having knowing conversations that could be about their real life but are actually in the film or any of the usual stuff that people like enjoy to pour over when an actual couple is on a film you know it's I feel like the opposite of this is um, I know they weren't probably technically a couple yet but Mr and Mrs Smith with Brad and Angelina <laughs> like everybody loves to take that film as like actually a true representation of how their mm. relationship started mm. um, whereas this just isn't like that at all um, and actually yeah. one of the main talking points from this film I feel like has been the fact that Millicent Simmons who's one of the other stars in it is actually deaf herself and she plays a deaf character in this and John Krasinski has talked quite a lot about how keen he was to have an actual deaf person playing the role of a deaf person both because he said it would be wrong to have someone pretending but also I think he said in an interview he wanted to like learn from her about how life is like when you can't communicate in the way that most other people do and it's a sort of central tenet of the film that the reason this family survives when others don't is because they're already used to speaking to each other with sign language. Mm, totally and I think John Krasinski said it was a quote non-negotiable for him to have a lead deaf actress and it's interesting what you say about there being almost no dialogue in this film because there's actually a lot of dialogue in this film it's just in sign language not not spoken spoken words and I've seen a few um, deaf people and others saying like critics don't say there's no dialogue in this film because there is and that's something yeah, that's that true. I would I never have well I would I would never have thought like realized that that obviously is like a problematic thing to say until I heard them saying mm. that so that was a learning thing for me and one thing that's great is Millicent Simmons again this is just something that I've learned from interviews is she kind of coached the different characters in how their signing would be different 
from each other right. because to, to communicate character, character yeah. which is obvious as soon as you as soon as someone says that to you you're like of course as with spoken intonation <laughs> delivery is an important part of mm. character and so the way they did that was John Krasinski's character signs in this very to the point blunt um, minimalist and urgent way because he's very concerned with survival and there's not mm. there's not any kind of like humor or poetry in his signing whereas Emily Blunt I'm thinking for example in the scene where she's trying to keep her kids learning and she's kind of homeschooling her children and trying yes. to keep them having a normal life she's funnier she's warmer she's you know much more interested in emotions she kind of does this fake crying doesn't she as well mm. like yeah the way that every character has a has a different style of using sign language as a way of uh, communicating their character i think that comes across really well in this film and it's just really interesting what they do with sound throughout as well because uh, another phrase that i've seen knocking about is calling this a silent film and you it's obviously not silent it's that's kind of in quote marks it could never really be considered a silent film because there's so much sound in it. And I saw this in a Dolby screening room, which I think really helps because it's like amazing sound quality. But everything makes noise and they've really like kind of ran that up because if making a noise makes a vicious blind monster immediately find you and kill you, then you're going to be hyper aware of any, any tiny noise. So every time someone takes a step, every time there's wind in some leaves, everything makes noise. And so in one sense that is logically quite difficult for the film because it has to kind of negotiate like which noise is allowed enough noise to make a yeah. monster come but on another level i think it really works as this kind of frightening and claustrophobic cinematic soundscape that you're in and you're and almost that not knowing the rules uh, and the rules not making any sense kind of heightened the fear for me i didn't yeah. find that problematic i say actually i quite like that because i think sometimes if a you know, when you come up with an underlying system or concept for a sci-fi film or a horror film, if it's too strictly adhered to, the, all the suspense can disappear because you can be like, oh, well, this time they won't get caught because X has happened, you know, uh, and you feel safe and secure. Whereas obviously the whole point of a film like this is to unsettle the audience and have them be on the edge of their seat and make them jump and stuff. Mm. Um, another thing I really liked about the sound actually was that the way that sometimes it sort of zooms in and gives you a uh, Reagan who's Millicent Sims's character it gives you what she's hearing or rather not hearing as opposed to other characters and that there are times when you know she's got her back turned and there's a monster really nearby but she can't hear it so she doesn't know it's there and those are the points where the film becomes the most quote silent because it really does kind of one yeah. minute you're looking from one perspective and you can hear the wind in the trees and so on and then the next minute is from her perspective and you get this very muffled it's like yeah. putting a big pair of earmuffs on immediately and you can't hear anything exactly yes and you know you see her reacting because she sees other people reacting rather than because she can like actually hear the source of what they're reacting to and stuff which is a level of complexity um perspective that i think speaks well of john krasinski's skills as a director so i think we should probably give a spoiler warning at this point because i don't want i i went into the film knowing nothing about what was going to happen and i think that's the best way to watch it i don't think yeah it's a, i agree so yeah spoilers from here on in if you haven't seen a quiet place and you want to so there are a few kind of emotional undercurrents in this film as well as the sort of sound monster concept one of which is that quite early on the third child gets taken by the monsters because he picks up a toy 
and plays with it and it makes a noise and on a walk back to where they live a monster gets them and so as well as dealing with all of the monsters (laughs) the surviving members of the family are also dealing with the fact that their little brother is dead and I thought that was a, a really important part of making this film more than just a kind of jump and scare film because I think without that it could have been quite a kind of formulaic almost like scream type film of like oh a scary thing happened now I'm recovering but this had emotional depth and you actually wanted to watch for reasons other than just are they going to live or die yeah I have to say I had some problems with some of the kind of family emotion dynamics in the film because I think this was the point where the dialogue became hammy and too much. Yeah, the dialogue is like the spoken dialogue is actually one of the worst things about it. But even some of the signed dialogue I found I found cheesy. Like so, there's a scene where. John Krasinski takes his son to a waterfall and they have a chat about the guilt they're both feeling mm. about um, the the death of the youngest member of the family. And it's very much like, oh, you need to tell Reagan that you love her. And this kind of wiser than his years, 10 year old is being like, dad, tell her you love her. And like that, I find a bit much. And then there's a, there's a much quoted line that almost every reviewer and every trailer and stuff really foregrounds, which is Emily Blunt saying to John Krasinski, if we can't protect them, mm. who are we? What's the point of us? And that was really bad. I find that spells out the met- the whole metaphor of the film, which is like, how can you protect your children? Do you wrap them in cotton wool or do you have to try and teach them to survive without you? What's the best way to do it? Do you throw them out there or do you just hide them from the world? That didn't need to be spoken. <laughs> I can't even remember yeah. if that was signed or spoken now, but like it just didn't it either way it didn't need to be dialogue. It, it could it was already implied the whole way through the film. Exactly. Yeah, that is spoken actually. That's part of the the sort of um false calm that you get after all of the horrors of like her trying to give birth in silence and him finding her and then you know when he mm-hmm. installs her and the baby in the basement and everything seems happy then they they they're like oh our soundproofing works and they have an actual out loud conversation about that and Mm. I was like this is unnecessary I don't like this I liked it better when none of you spoke to each other with words yeah and then this is a huge spoiler warning but the the emotional climax of the film involves John Krasinski kind of signing to his daughter that he loves her and always has loved her you know just before he thinks he'll never be able to speak to her ever again and it's so hammy (laughs) it's a shame because it's a really emotional moment in the film and I feel like he almost didn't need to make those signs. They could have just looked at each other. Yeah, exactly. So they're both good enough actors to pull that off. Weirdly, so I've seen so many people saying there's so much, there's so little dialogue in this film, and I'm like, I could have done with less. (laughs) Yeah, that's exactly how I felt as well. Overall, I left the cinema thinking like that was a surprising film. Um, You know, I found that interesting and surprising, and definitely I mean I think we've talked about this before like horror is not my sort of natural genre it's not really where I like to explore a lot but I did really enjoy this another thing I did think that they could have done that would have made this film better was I don't think we should have ever really seen the monsters properly Mm. the monsters look the same as every other monster at the moment like the Stranger Things monster and yeah they look like every cgi monster from like doctor who to stranger things to Mm. you know just everything to alien whatever and as soon as you see it it's not as scary anymore Mm. when it's just like movement in the trees flitting and footsteps then it's terrifying but once you like see and it's got like a big gory scary mouth you're like oh that's just out of a computer yeah i i feel less scared now 
I thought that either they should have made the monsters look more like people or something, or you just should never have seen them at all. Mm. And in that sense, it reminded me a bit of, have you seen, you know, the, the famous Doctor Who episode with Carrie Mulligan? Blink. I can't remember. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely. The one, the first one with the stone statues. Yeah. In. That one is a complete triumph because you barely ever see the statues move. You barely see them at all. But there's just this building sense of terror that like, if you close your eyes, they'll get you. Yeah. Whereas that was so successful and so influential that they then introduced the statues in multiple episodes since as like recurring villains and you just saw more of them and then it all culminated in like oh the statue of liberty is a giant scary statue monster that's going to get you really i didn't know that it went down that that and it just became absurd and not scary at all Mm. that's interesting yeah i think they've done something so interesting with this film and it it didn't work 100 percent. but does a film have to work 100 percent to be interesting and cool and doing something new no so it's it's really interesting and it's done so well it's been the best opening weekend in the u.s at the box office since black panther and it's pulled in way more money than it costs to make. And, you know, horror always does really reliably at the box office, you know, whether it's it or mm. whatever. But I think kind of a lot of people have compared it to Get Out in that it occupies that horror space. I mean, I know some horror fans have really not liked this film. Kate, who we work with, who does the Back Half podcast, really didn't like it. And she loves horror. And I think some people think this is a horror film for people who aren't super into horror. But either way, it kind of occupies that space that's kind of like not just mainstream teenagers going on a Friday night horror, also like middle-aged people who might also go and see an arty movie horror. It's kind of like somewhere in between those two extremes. It straddles that, doesn't it? And you're right to compare it to Get Out, actually, because it does have that sense of like the real world and its like structures in Get Out's case it's like racism in this case it's sort of like traditional family dynamics Mm. and sort of adds an element of the supernatural or horror to it but then shows you like how that affects the family or totally the boyfriend or whatever it's not as like fun and ridiculous to analyze it hasn't got as much depth or as much like immediate satisfaction as Get Out but it is really good it is really good and I hope that what was it I definitely read a piece around the time when Get Out was getting a lot of press when someone was saying that basically um Jordan Peele had invented a new genre of like woke horror yeah um (laughs) and I think you could probably put a quiet place in that genre too and I hope that yeah I hope it's a genre that's gonna have more films because I think (laughs) I like it (laughs) I'm Sandra and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. 
like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. So the next thing we're going to talk about is a series of unfortunate events. The Netflix adaptation of the novels of the same name by Lemony Snicket or Daniel Handler. It stars Neil Patrick Harris as the sinister Count Olaf, who's constantly trying to kidnap the Baudelaire orphans in order to steal their fortune. This is the second series, and a third has already been commissioned. We talked about this before, didn't we, Caroline? A series of unfortunate events. I love the books, read them all growing up. We talked about the first season last time, I guess last yes. January or whenever. I, think it's, when I, it was I looked on. up, I think it's in our episode 77, if you wish to go back and hear us talk about series one. Oh, that's why they pay the big bucks <laughs> but they don't look <laughs> and I love this adaptation I think it's so good I find it really funny and really witty and yeah really clever and I love all the kind of weird references they do to like the fact that it's a Netflix yeah, show constantly I absolutely love that I know you wrote about this at the time didn't you the kind of postmodern aspects of it because uh, correct me mm. if I'm wrong but I think that that's how the books are structured as well isn't it that you know Lemony Snicket is uh, he's the author of the books, but he's also an like an observer in real time of the story. Yeah, he's like the frame yeah. narrative and he's the one filtering all your information through and he constantly defines words for you. So, you know, he'll be like a catastrophe, which here means a crocodile eating two yeah, person's legs exactly. or something. So it's not like a literal definition, but it's a very specific to the to the scenario definition. And yeah, that that's where all their kind of life and humor springs from so when they adapted it for the movies with Jude Law just kind of bashing away a typewriter in the background occasionally it kind of lost some of that spark yeah that was rubbish but in this case um Patrick Warburton plays Lemony Snicket and he walks through the action at several points like he always introduces every episode and he pops up like five or six times through to kind of give you a bit of frame narrative to update you as you say to like define some terms for you and also there's this constant refrain through it saying like you shouldn't watch this like the story is just mm. too unhappy like mm -hmm. save yourself and that's also in the theme song which Neil Patrick Harris sings which is just like look away look away mm -hmm. um, but yeah there are all these jokes that center on the fact that it is actually a screen adaptation so they've really ported it into the new format rather than it being like a book that you're that you're watching on screen it's like no we've changed this to be a screen native thing yeah and the, in, in that quite classic children's book way in the books all the characters that are into reading and like reading like Klaus his whole character is built around being a big reader yeah. are like the good characters and you know if someone loves books then they're like safe in the Netflix adaptation all the evil characters keep talking about how they love to go home yes. and watch streaming television <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> and I really and like there's that, a great bit yeah. in the very first episode I think where because we left Violet Klaus and Sonny Baudelaire waiting in the lobby at the school that they're going yeah. to be sent to now that was at the end of series one and it opens in the exact same place in series mm -hmm. two and I think it's Klaus has the line like we've been waiting here for ages it feels like months almost long enough for our little sister to look less like a baby and more like a toddler 
because <laughs> obviously the actress has grown up. Yeah. It's amazing because obviously the lead characters in this are the three orphans, but they're very mm. boring and they're very earnest. Although you kind of care about them, you're not it's not really what you watch it for or read the books for and it's a tricky thing because one of the ten- central jokes of a series of unfortunate events is that almost the same thing happens every yeah. single time and it's very repetitive and it's like literally what it says on the tin one ridiculous unfortunate series of calamities after another and like the the adults that are meant to protect them make the same mistakes every single time so these children are never safe and sometimes in a tv show that can really get very like oh what am i just going to watch count olaf in a Mm -hmm. disguise again and again and again but i think they um really work with that in this series by absolutely ramping up the supporting performances and i think they're brilliant and that's what makes me watch this show the girl i don't even know the actress's name i'm sorry who plays carmelita spatz in (laughs) the first two episodes is absolutely incredible just like so bitchy so insufferable just relishing it it's just like a super committed performance from that actress and I'm just in love with it (laughs) and if it wasn't for things like that I think it could get a bit repetitive but every episode every two-parter episode they bring in a whole two or three new Mm. supporting characters and that um, I think enlivens it each time. Do you know who Carmelita reminded me of is Felicity Jones as Ethel Hallow in the original Uh, Worst Witch TV series she's got that. Except on steroids. Except on steroids and tap dancing but um, she doesn't have like the sort of cool dignity of Ethel but she has all the like bitchiness and all the total non sequitur insults so like Carmelita keeps calling the Baudelaire's cake sniffers it's like and uh, at first class it's like but cake is nice I would like to sniff what yeah and then you see you get this great shot of her like sniffing a cake later on that I found really funny I have to talk about Lucy Punch because I just think she's incredible Mm. so Lucy Punch turns up in the third episode or the second story of this series she plays Esme Squalor who yeah makes her first appearance in the Earthsats elevator story and then she actually sticks with the plot from then Mm. on and she's such a great addition she's so psychopathically bitchy and horrific and just so sharp and her performance is just so funny and we've talked about lucy punch in loads of things i think you'd you'd know her from motherland on the bbc you'd know her from things like centrinians she's been forging through with this exact same character for years now this kind of like uptight blonde um self-obsessed vain power hungry bitchy mm. horrible mean woman and she's just incredible as as count olaf's kind of love interest and sidekick he's not particularly interested in her she's very interested in him and i love the way she uses her hands when she performs i love the way she does this kind of like faltering glance like when you see the kind of mm. cracks appear in her facade just she's just wonderful everything about her her is amazing so that's made this series for me it's a great vocal performance as well actually because I've only seen her in one episode so far I'm on the first I've just finished the first installment of the Ersatz Elevator and so far her defining characteristic as a as a character is this obsession with what's in and what's out and I imagine if you were to see her dialogue written down it would just look like a long list of her going like pinstripes are in light is out 
flowers are out, all this kind of stuff. But she somehow makes it really interesting. And you're like, but what else is in? What else is out? Rather than it seeming like a kind of repetitive list that she's reading. Um, It's really clever. I think it's like criminal that she's not super famous. Mm. I just so much of it it's like just the best comic performance that i've seen in ages so congrats to lucy punch it's 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 a very strange sort of type of casting that they go for in these in this series of unfortunate events program i think it's quite a bold move to cast neil patrick harris as as count olaf when people heard about that they were like what they've got the guy who plays buster in arrested development in this as kind of a very lovely sappy character that all, all the casting comes from kind of weird corners, but it always really, really works. So like shout out to whoever's involved, who in charge of casting yeah. on this show because it's brilliant. I feel like whoever they are, they have avoided maybe the more common casting mistake of being like, oh, it's more important to have a super famous, well-known person mm. than it is to have like necessarily someone who's absolutely perfect for the role. Like, so, you know, because I can, I can see a, like an alternate universe in which they would, try and cast like emma stone as esme squalor or something Mm. um and that would not work at all and ditto like i feel like yeah they've scoured all the cult hits of the past 10 years and thought why do people like arrested development so much is it because actually even though all the people are horrible they have a kind of genuineness that shines through let's get an actor who can do that you know mm. and nathan fillion is really good in this as well as as jacques snicket lemony snicket's yes. kind of more masculine cowboyish um brother and he one thing i love about this is nathan fillion i feel like used to be almost an action star <laughs> and like now he looks like totally the opposite he's got like such a dad bod but they've cast him in this quite like actiony role and just like left that totally as it is and it really works for me there's just something about this kind of like almostness of of this Jacques Snicket figure that's like almost coming in to save the day and is almost you know always nearly there um to help the kids that works really well for me and his like obviously his his earnestness shtick works really well in that role so um, but yeah, I mean, with the film, obviously they did, they had like Meryl Streep and Jim mm. Carrey and they cast all these huge names, but it didn't have the wicked humor that this has. And I think it just comes from casting the people who have given the funniest performance in their in their uh, auditions and it clearly works. Yeah. And you're absolutely right that because it's a TV show and because, yeah, essentially the same thing does happen every time an unfortunate event occurs, you need enough interest in the orphans to want to watch the next one. But you also want you, you also find yourself being like, oh, I wonder what the librarian will do next time or will Mr. Poe be in it? Like it's such an ensemble, whereas I don't think the film was an ensemble so much. Like they really tried to get you to care about like the spyglass and shit, which mm. I I'm mildly interested. Like, we should say Anna's read the books. I haven't. I'm mildly interested to know why they have half a spyglass and all this kind of stuff. But I'm more interested in like how count olaf's gonna turn out to be honest mm, and it was always the ephemeral stuff that i was really interested in reading the books like beatrice you get these letters mm. to beatrice at the opening of every episode and it's like who is beatrice esme in one episode says 
Beatrice stole it from me. And you're like, wait, what? Mm. Beatrice is also a real character in the thing. And, you know, those kinds of things are really fun to me. But it's not, you're right, it's not what's driving the plot forward. So um, it's a tricky balance to strike. And I think they've done it really, really well. Because Daniel Handler is quite involved in this series. You know, he's he's an executive producer and so on. And I'm glad that he's been happy for his books to be like pulled apart a bit and actually remade into something else. Uh, yeah, apparently um, Daniel Handler wrote some of the first scripts for the first series, mm. but has written the second season. Right. Okay. So, so yeah, there you go. Yeah, it's it's just perfectly pitched and works really well for me. Even if I'm not like desperate to know what happens next, I'm just like sat there like enjoying it a lot while I'm like doing other things. So yeah, definitely it, check out. It's perfect show for that. Absolutely. <laughs> So last week, we accepted a listener recommend to watch the ITV reality series, Bromans, the premise of which is let's get a load of lads, uh, shove them in a mock version of ancient Rome, get all their girlfriends along and make them compete against each other for, I don't even know for what, for victory. I think it's money. I think because I, I watched one episode and then I sort of read some of the pieces that were published around the time it aired. And I definitely saw one of them saying it's like a ludicrously low amount of money though like mm. not even equivalent to like the average <laughs> annual salary or anything so like why would you <laughs> give up your job to do this it's crazy in the first episode they like put all these lads in a coliseum put all their girlfriends in bikinis and then strip them down to absolutely nothing so they're all just <laughs> holding their dick and balls like mm-hmm. in a line and you keep you do see there's like some serious full frontal male nudity and where they like all flash each other and stuff um the thing that I was most, uh, sh- you know, struck by in this program was that pubes, mm. not a thing, yeah. not a thing for these lads. <laughs> Absolutely not a single pube on any of them. Not one, <laughs> <laughs> not one pube, uh, which I mean, apparently that's the sort of like 24 year old Essex waxed chest vibe. Okay, is that yeah. You also just make sure you don't have a single pube ever. Um Unless that was a requirement from the TV producers. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, didn't we, we watched one episode, didn't we, of that dating show where people were naked. naked. attraction. Yeah. There was also almost no pubes on that. There was no pubes, no pubes on, that. on that either, so. I feel like there were some pubes though, like yeah, someone would they come were on, on, they'd be like, oh, she's got pubes. They were on like alternative people who had tattoos though. Yeah, but on this, even the alternative people with tattoos don't have a pube, not one in sight. Um, so yeah, that's the level that we're at guys that's the level Uh this show has been pitched at um yeah so it's really really stupid really really silly they've got this guy who i think is one of the old 118 guys yeah like stands offside in a toga and it's like oh i guess we know now why rome wasn't built in a day (laughs) (laughs) and things like that and like makes faux intellectual comments um so it's really taking the piss out of itself um I'm amazed at how literal a lot of the people on this show are, how seriously they seem to take it, how much they actually Mm. seem to care about like being a gladiator. (laughs) Yeah, that's the part that I found weirdest about it, actually, because as you say, the format does poke fun at itself and I think is quite lighthearted and stuff. But then, yeah, the people on it are dead serious about like excelling at the task Mm. rather than, I could see why you might go on it to, 
you know, be the kind of comedy character who becomes the breakout star that like does daytime telly or something. But no one's going to hire you just because you're good at hitting people with sticks or carrying rocks. Like, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's a strange, it's almost weird. like form of masculinity where it's like must succeed at physical exertion. And that just overrides everything else. But they really put the girls through it as well. Mm. Like the first task is the girls have to like get win clothes for their naked boyfriends by like digging them out of the sand. And there's like six bags of clothes to eight men. And once you've got it, it's sort of like a rugby style. You have to run to the line mm. without being tackled. Otherwise, the other person gets the clothes. And they were like pulling each other's hair, slapping each other, dragging each other to the ground. It was like so fierce and so like they were all really going for it. There's, these girls emerged like covered in cuts and bruises. And then afterwards, like some of the girls and their partners were like crying, not with the emotion of it, but with like pride how well they thought they'd done and like and I was like wow these people are actually crying over a task that involves putting clothes on a naked man like it's just absolutely bizarre but it is absolutely brilliant um and yeah all of the all of the contestants are just really bizarre specimens of humanity but really uh, genuine and most of them seem pretty like most of the women seem pretty nice most of the men seem pretty awful (laughs) yeah I'd say that's fair yeah um I did wonder in a few cases like are they actually boyfriend and girlfriend or have they been like matched up for the show I think they are actually boyfriend and girlfriend but I'm sure the casting process is like Love Island or something Mm. where they're like get them in several times make sure they're really really fit you know, it's it's definitely that aesthetic of like attractiveness, the Love Island, um, you know, beachy, definitely, very muscly, yeah. very toned. I read um, one, they all have to fit that criteria clearly. I read one review that was like uh, Romans is Love Island, but with togas, um, yeah. which I think it is. also kind of reminds me of Tool Academy. I never watched that. Tool Academy was this Rick Edwards show where he just got like loads of absolute assholes and try to teach them to be less of an asshole, I think. <laughs> and their girlfriends would be like crying about how they'd like been cheated on so many times and stuff. Mm. Um, so it's kind of like Tool Academy meets, except they're like encouraging them, encouraging them to continue being tools by preaching this sort of toxic masculinity mm. towards them. Love Island and yeah, I don't know, ancient Greece, <laughs> ancient Rome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's bizarre it's bizarre but i have to say thank you to the listener who recommended it because i would never have watched it otherwise and i did find it very amusing so yeah i had a pleasant time laughing at it so we're not having a proper recommend for next week because it's our book club episode so we must just reiterate that you Mm. all need to read the cost of living by deborah levy yeah it's so good Thanks for listening to this episode of Seriously, the pop culture podcast from the New Statesman. If you enjoyed the show, why not subscribe to make sure you never miss another episode? We're available in all the usual places you get podcasts, including on Apple Podcasts, where you could leave us a rating and a review if you fancy. It makes us happy and it also helps other people find the show. If you'd like to come and see us in person, check out the events page of our website, seriouslypod.com slash events. Details of our next pop culture quiz and anything else we're doing will appear there. We're available many other places on the internet, including on Twitter, Facebook and Tumblr. We're Seriously Pod on all of them. Follow us to keep up with what we're up to or to chat to other listeners about things you you've enjoyed on the show we love getting your recommendations for things we should feature on the show or hearing your thoughts on what we've already discussed 
Get in touch on social media or email us on seriouslypod at gmail.com. And if you feel strongly that more pop culture needs to be taken seriously, spread the word and tell your friends and family about the podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.